If you're visiting here with us this morning, it's great to have you here at Mercy Hill. I just want to give a, a quick introduction to who I am, because I might be new to uh, many of you here this morning. My name is David Hamstra. I lead the young adult ministry that meets here called Echo. And also, I am a uh, pastor over at a church in Crown Point, Indiana, called Cross Point. Uh, now, my older brother is the senior pastor at this church. And just this weekend, I think it was for the first time, I thought I was asked a really great question regarding our positioning. And they said, um, they, I think it was prefaced by saying, I don't want to be rude, but why are you both pastors and going to different churches? And uh, like, is there like any kind of like sibling rivalry that happened? And in my mind, when I, when she, when our friend asked this question, I thought it was a good question. I um, remembered back to my time working at Leaps with my brother and we were both in the warehouse and a delivery truck would come up and we would fight for about five minutes. No, you go. No, you go. No, you pick it up. No, you pick it up. I'm not going to go. I'm not going either. You're first away. No, I'm first away. No. And we'd start running around the warehouse chasing each other. And like the UPS guy would walk in and he'd just be like, is, is this really happening? And, um, and so I would say, he's my brother. He'd be like, ah, okay, go, go on, go ahead. You know? And so I, I thought about that and I thought about, you know, if we were here together, if we'd be fighting over who'd be preaching each Sunday. Um, but that wasn't the case. There wasn't any kind of fighting that led us to uh, be at different churches. It was actually just the Lord really positioning us. And, um, and so we're excited to just be uh, where God has us. So I'm um, great to be here. This is like five blocks from my home, and it's nice to have a little commute to church in the morning. And uh, so it's good to see all of you. This morning, I'm going to be uh, looking in the Psalms. We're continuing our Psalm series. And if you do not have a booklet, these are weekly devotionals to go along with the teachings on Sunday mornings. These are really helpful just to be meditating on the Psalms and what we're uh, preaching here on Sundays. Uh, does anyone not have one? Because we'd love to get one in your hands. We have a lot of extra copies. We want to make sure everyone here walks away with their weekly devotional. So if you don't have one, can you just raise your hand real quick and we'll get one in your hands. We have one in the back. And anyone else? You won't be charged for them. They're, they're free. They're really nice and pretty. And uh, so don't be shy. You can raise your hand. Anyone else need one? Are we good? Cool. Okay. So if you do have your Bibles, I want to first open up to Psalm 73. Psalms is uh, the book in the middle of your Bible. It's the best book to turn to because you just open your Bible in half and it's right there. So Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. This is one of my favorite Psalms in the Bible. And for me, when I read this, it is both challenging and uh, at times somewhat unrelatable. I feel like the statement that is made of on earth, there is nothing I desire besides you is such an amazingly strong statement because what they're saying is of all the things I could have on this earth, all the, the wealth and the friendships and the relationships and the possessions of all the things that I could have on this earth. As I look at them, I desire nothing but you, Lord. In light of all these things, you are the only one that I desire. And 
what this reminds me of is, is just something that we did recently with our son, Calvin, me and Beth. Uh, we have a six-month-old a boy named Calvin, and uh, we took him to the doctor to get his immunization shots. Um, I don't know, has anyone ever taken their kids to do that? Uh, it, it is quite an interesting thing because your baby's happy and just living life. All of a sudden, like, like, just take this needle right in his leg, and he's like, rah, it goes nuts, and it's pretty intense as a parent as you see your kid just scream like crazy. Um, but it's, it's a good thing because the, the, even though it's a short-term pain, um, what we're doing basically by getting immunization shots is there are serious, sometimes life-ending diseases that are out there. Polio, uh, whooping cough, a lot of very serious sicknesses. And by putting in our children either a live or dead strain of that sickness, we're basically inoculating them from getting it in the future. And so when you put that in their body with a shot, their body builds up an immunity to it. And so when they're faced with the real thing, when the, when the real deal is on there, their body knows how to deal with it and defend itself. And so it's actually a really good thing. And when I did that for Calvin, I even thought about so often our Christian walk that we might have a little bit of Jesus or a little bit of church in us that we get immunized with. And then we read a scripture like this that says, "In earth has nothing I desire. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. We read that and we don't even have a category to put it on because we've almost been immunized against it because we've had our little doses of God or the Bible or church. And that's been enough for us. That, that has, for us, put up an immunity so that when we're faced with this real deal, like full on, there's nothing in life I desire but you, God. We're like, what, what is that? I don't, that's not my experience. I don't even know anybody like that. I, I can't even relate to that. And this morning, I want to unlock for us what I believe to be is the greatest thing that we could ever come to is to say on earth, there is nothing I desire but you, Jesus. That is my hope, is that through God's word this morning, that we would walk away with that sense of faith and conviction about who God is to us. I feel like this is especially difficult for our men. I want to address the men here for a second. I feel like as men, uh, we are told that it is a sissy thing to do to talk about loving God or talk about longing for God. When we, when we use that vocabulary as men, that's something that women do and say, and, and as men, we don't do that, Right. Like we, we don't go to work on a job site. We're doing construction and we're talking about, man, I just love Jesus so much, man. I just long for him. Our guys are like, seriously, um, we, we, would, we would feel like we get laughed off the job site. And so I think that there is a pressure in our culture today that almost produces in us a fear as men to actually express a love for God. And for me personally, I find that this is a double whammy because I grew up Dutch. I don't know if you ever know anybody that's Dutch or if you have Dutch family. Uh, Dutch people, it's illegal to be passionate in the Dutch culture. I remember growing up reading the Psalms and asking my mom, Mom, this guy is like crying. He's pulling his hair out. He's like passionate. He's dancing. How come we don't do that? And she said, because we're Dutch. Dutch people... Dutch people don't have emotions. We, Dutch people don't get like that. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. So when I read this, I know this guy obviously wasn't Dutch. He was writing the Psalms. And so I think there, there can be as well as upbringings as guys that are difficult for us to relate to. Uh, the funny thing about Dutch people is that if you want to see a Dutch person, get, they are passionate people. 
they are passionate about not working on Sabbath and going to Christian school. And so if you want to see a Dutch person get super riled up, tell them that you work on Sundays and you send your kids to public schools. They'll like start pulling their hair out and start crying and be like, no. And that's how you see the passions come out when you deal with things like that. But so for guys, this is difficult. And I want to tell us this morning what we're going to read in Psalms this morning. What we're going to read was written by a dude who is one of the most manliest men to ever walk this earth. I, trust me on this. This guy was a bad dude. He killed both a lion and bear with his bare hands. If you look at the book of 1 Samuel, he actually talks about it. He said he grabbed a lion with his, by the beard with his hands and killed it. I don't know about you guys, but like, I, I have no interest in getting in a steel cage match with a lion or bear. Like, there's just no desire. Put me a football field away, give me a sniper rifle, and I might like feel somewhat comfortable. But this guy killed these animals with his bare hands. He killed a nine-foot giant. This guy was a bad dude. If he were to face Chuck Norris, he would take him down. Like, he would have no qualms with that. This is how bad it is. And here's the thing about David. He was all man, and he was somehow able to express a love and a longing for God that puts us to shame. And so I want us to stop equating, talking about loving God as something that is feminine, because the, the manliest man in the Bible wrote this, and I think as men, we have something to learn from him. Okay? Bear with me? All right, I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into Psalm 63. Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you that it is truth to us, Lord, that it is life. Lord, I thank you that where we have maybe been told lies or build up mindsets or even expectations, Lord, your word can tear those down. God, thank you that, Lord, your spirit breathes life into your word that changes our hearts and renews our mind. And this morning, I pray that you would deal with the barriers that we might have built up in our life. God, if there's any bitterness or hardness of heart, God, or just pride and rebellion, Lord, I pray that you would deal with us in those things this morning, that we would come with a fresh faith and conviction and expectation when we look at your word this morning. God, thank you that your word is life to us, Lord, that you reveal yourself in your word, and we pray that we would experience your power, Lord, your life-giving power as we look at your word today. God, I pray this in your name. Amen. You guys ready? Psalm 63. Here we go. That was my preface introduction. I'm not going to get through this whole Psalm today. Don't be worried. I'm not going to go to like one o'clock. And so I think we'll post the notes on uh, the website. So if you want to look at the rest of the stuff, I don't get to uh, feel free to jump on there later and download that. So Psalm 63 verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. 
All who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. What's amazing about this scripture that we just read is that David was actually fleeing for his life. The king at the time, King Saul, found out that David was going to be king next, and he didn't like that idea. And so he had it in his mind to kill him. If I kill David, my son can become king and it will stay in my family. And so this whole psalm was written while David was on the run for his life. He was basically in the desert, in the wilderness, and he was with very little water, food, and friends. His family probably abandoned him. His, his dad probably didn't want anything to do with him because if so, they would be killed. And so David was very much alone. David was very much in the desert. And he wrote this amazing psalm. I think it's helpful for us to know that this wasn't written like when he was on his bed listening to emo music and having a good time. Uh, sometimes we can almost have a disconnect with the situation and the context that some of these things were written. David wrote these things in the middle of one of the greatest distresses of his life. I don't know about you guys, but I've never been chased for my life. I, I ran with the bulls in Spain a few years ago, and it felt like the, I was being chased for my life. Um, but I never had people out there to kill me. So David was running for his life, and this was what overflowed from his pen. And so I want to help us understand what was the keys for David? What was the things that unlocked this longing and love for God in the middle of one of his greatest trials in life? In verse 1, we see him saying, Oh God, you are my God. The first six words of this psalm are so important for us because what David was saying was very personal. He was saying, Oh God, God, you are my God. Oh God, you are my God. He wasn't saying, God, you are out there. God, you are somewhere in this whole universe. God, I believe in you. God, I, I, there's doctrines that I believe in you. He was saying, God, you are my God. This was so personal for him. He made God very personal to himself and his situation. And what's, I think the reality of what we do in our lives is often we take this, oh God, you are my God, and make it into something much different. What we do is often we say, oh God, there's something else that is my God. It might be a credit card. We say, oh credit card, you are my God, right? We're in trouble, we're in distress. The one thing that can get us out of situation is what? Our plastic, right? Or how about this? Times are tough, the economy's bad. Oh, mom and dad, you are my God. Please help me. Can we move in just for six months or a year or 10 years? But help me, right? Or we might say, oh, boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, you are my God. I am just struggling at work. My boss hates me and I'm turning to you to console me and make me feel better. Our often response in distress and difficulty is something very different from what David is saying. If we were to be honest with ourselves, often the first place we turn is not the Lord. And for David, the key for him in this longing and love for God was recognizing that in this moment, God is the only one that he could turn to. That was it. Oh God, you are my God. And so I want to challenge us. Men, man, I tell you what, I, what kills me is I think often our crisis, oh sports, you are my God. When the Bears lose that next Monday, I want to kill myself. It is the worst day of my life. I, I want to just have 10 cups of coffee to get me through the day. It is the worst day when the Bears lose, right? Do you guys ever see like, I don't know about you guys, but like I worked in Chicago. When the Bears lost the next day, 
boy, the office was a drag. I mean, it was tough. I mean, you know, guys, it, it just, it affects everything, right? Oh, sports, you are my God. That's what we're saying, isn't it? I have seen guys be able to recite more stats for me than they ever could the Bible, right? I mean, they could tell you who like pitched a no hitter 15 years ago on a Wednesday night on a, and it was 30 degrees out. Like they, they know those stats. They can tell you how many rushing yards Emmett Smith had 15 years ago when he led the league in rushing, right? We know this stuff. I mean, this stuff is ingrained in our head. And when you say, man, what are you reading? What God, what is God showing you? What, what do you get? What do you got in the Bible? I have no idea. I have a hard time memorizing things. What? Seriously? Right? Come on now. Seriously. Girls, I just want to address you for a second. Girls, shopping, come on. Like, I have seen so many girls, it is a terrible day, I need to go shopping. I remember at my office, like my manager, she loved to shop. And whenever she got in a fight with her husband, or fian- at the time it was the fiance, she'd come in with these like two huge bags of clothes after lunch and like feeling like the, a million bucks. Life was great again. Oh, shopping, you are. Oh, chocolate, you are my God. Right? Let's be honest. What David was hitting on is so key for us. And he knew the only one that would satisfy him, the only one that would intervene in a situation was God. We need to be a people that relearn the reality that God is the only one that will satisfy. He's the only one that can meet us in those moments. Something that I, I, I have found in working with young people, especially, um, is two things I hear most often. Young people can be dramatic at times, right? Sometimes I'll meet with somebody who's young and they are just passionate for Jesus. Like God is awesome and great, changed their life. They are a full cup. Like they just, the, things are great and they're going for it. And man, watch out world because they're going to just take you by storm, right? And then two hours later, Two hours later, man, things are tough. Life is hard. I feel so dry. What happened? What's going on in my life? I thought God was there. I I was just reading and he was speaking to me. I read my Bible again today and nothing was there, right? We have this almost this like I'm full or I'm empty syndrome that goes on in our culture today. Either we're full of God, things are great, or man, God is far from me. Where is he? I'm going through a hard time. I'm feeling dry and empty and this is where I'm at. And I, I want to present to us, I believe to be the third reality that exists. I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of this one. I don't think this one is there. I think maybe once in a great while, God might distance himself from us that we would long for him more. But most times, this is not our situation. I, I think most times what we're doing is we're filling our life up with something else. And so we might say we're dry, we might say we're empty, but the reality is, is that our life is so full of something else that we leave no room for this. And so when we say we're dry, when we say we're empty, when we say God is distant from us, he, he's not. We're, not, we're not dry, empty. What's happening is, man, we are so full of something else that there's no place for God in our lives. Does that make sense? And this is what that is. That is idols. We have idols in our hearts that we fill that take the place of God. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, a, a critic of society and culture uh, years ago, he said, there are more idols in the world than there are realities. There are more idols in this world than there are realities. And Tim Keller 
define idols, and I think this is a very helpful definition of what it is an idol, because in my mind, when I think of an idol, I think of like this big Buddha statue that like you see sometimes that you like never want to buy for your house because it looks weird to have idols in your home, you know, like these big golden things. That's what I think of idols. And really what Tim Keller says is something very different. What he says idols are is this. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Sometimes I can just imagine the Bears winning the Super Bowl. It just fills my mind, right? I mean, we just picture it happening. We, we picture that event. I can't imagine the Cubs ever winning the World Series. Um, I feel like that's beyond my imagination. But he is saying, he is saying this, anything that absorbs our heart and our imagination, anything that we think about, we daydream during the day about, more than God. This is anything that we do more than God. Anything that we seek to give us only what God can give. Whether that is happiness, joy, whether that is filling a need, anything that we seek out in our lives to give us only what God can give us. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to our happiness, our meaning in life and our identity, this becomes an idol. Do you ever see anybody like they're your best friend and you're going well, you're hanging out together. All of a sudden they start dating somebody and, and they, you, like, did they, are they, do they move away? Like, are they still around? What happened to them? Right. Do you ever see that? Like all of a sudden this person just disappears off the face of the earth. You never see them again until they break up and that person's a jerk and they want to be right back friends with you again. Right. Anyone ever experienced that? And so, so often, even our identity can be so wrapped into a person or a thing that is an idol. And I want us to, to go from there to see what it is and learn from David. David is teaching us that only God can satisfy the thirst and longing that exists in our hearts. Only God. He's the only one that will meet that. And for him, when he was in the desert thirsting, he knew his source would be the Lord. He yearned for it. And we see the root of that. This is what sprang out of in verse 2 through 3. It says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. The great thirst, this longing for God, what it was rooted out of, is he said, I have seen you in the sanctuary. It came from past experience. It came from him actually beholding and seeing the Lord in such a way that he knew that God would meet him again. And oftentimes, we live our lives without ever seeing or experiencing God. And so as a result, we hunger and thirst for something else. And for David, the root of this longing and thirst was, I have seen you in the sanctuary. I have seen you. I have beheld your glory and your power. So I know that you will once again be faithful to show up. In the Old Testament, there was a time period that existed where it says in 1 Samuel 3.1, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. That is, I believe, the reality of our lives today. We live in a temperament. We live in an expectation that God does not speak. It's almost like we're so shocked when he shows up. We're like, oh my goodness, that was awesome. Can you believe he actually showed up? And it's like this huge surprise because it's something that has become so rare for us. One of David's greatest assets was the fact that he was able to wait on the Lord. Psalm 40 says, I waited on the Lord and he heard my cry. Man, we cannot wait for a second, can we? We, I, I remember I moved to Texas 
and I would go to fast food places like McDonald's and I would go berserk because I'm like, this is not fast food. This is a travesty in Texas. This, you don't understand fast food. Like it should be four minutes and it should be 20 minutes to get through. Like, I don't want to talk to you about my dog and church and all these things. I want my food, right? Like I couldn't understand because they just were so slow down there. Like things is the, the pace of life just slowed down in Texas, right? It is its own country that they are. It's a different place. And it drove me nuts because I was used to being up here in the north where we get things now, right? Like when we want it, we get it. You know, on our phones, we can do everything. We can, you know, text, email, take pictures, update Facebook, you know, play Zanga, whatever, whatever we do, we, we have it all at their fingertips. And so David knew what it meant to wait on the Lord. And out of his waiting, he saw God show up in powerful ways. Guys, we need to be a people that relearn what it means to wait on the Lord so that we don't just say a quick prayer. Two minutes later, we're gone and hoping God answers. We're actually waiting on God and saying, God, I, you're the only one that can meet this need right here in this moment. I just want to testify that because this is important for us to get. I don't want us to skip this. In my home group this week, me and Beth are in a young marriage home group in our church. We saw God show up in powerful ways. We are praying that there's a couple in our group. One, the husband is a full-time med student and he is going massively in debt. And his wife, they just got married. She just graduated college and she had no job. And so there was like no, like even just movement to plus. It was all like debt bills, debt bills, like bad stuff, right? Like no job and med school are a combination for uh, lots of debt. And so they were feeling just the weight of their debt. They were feeling the weight of what they're going through. And they just shared openly about the struggles and where they're at. And some in our group just, they brought the word of the Lord to them and said, let's believe that by next home group, you will have a job. Let's just say in faith, well, let's just say that the, the Lord would say, you're going to have a job by next home group. Let's just have that faith and expectation for God to show up. Amazingly, like 8.30 the next morning, an employer called and gave uh, his wife a job. The next morning, I'm like, how good is God? This person had not had a job for months and it was one night. Next morning, bam, job offers in, they, she had a job. Man, that, that is how God shows up. But we must come to him with that expectation that only he will be the one to meet that need. We had another couple in our group. I mean, it was just awesome. We were sitting there talking and one couple, man, they had some bills going and they, they just, they were having difficulty paying and just staying afloat. They had a mortgage. They were trying to live below their means and being good stewards, but man, they were just in serious debt. A lot of difficulty going on in their life. We cry out to the Lord, God, step in, intervene, help, just show away. And, and we prayed in faith. We believe that God is the one who meets our needs. After we got done praying, we really felt like the rise of faith that God's going to show up. Let's just expect him to show up in a powerful way. I think it was two days later, the guy at his job had a random one-time bonus that like he, was just, he didn't know about, wasn't supposed to get. It just happened. He got this bonus and this bonus met every need that they had. And so instead of being a negative, they're now back at square one, just even keel. That weight was lifted off their shoulders. And I'm thinking... Man, how often do we fail in even coming to God for these things? We look everywhere else. We look to our friends. We ask our parents. How often do we come to God and say, God, I am so desperate right now for a breakthrough. I, I just want to seek you and you be the one that shows up. Man, he does that, guys. That is the God that we serve. Amen? Amen. You guys doing all right? I feel pretty fired about this. Like I realize my life, I'm not there yet, but I want to be there. I want what David had. We see in, in verse four, he says, I will praise you as long as I live. And I, in your name, I will lift up my hands. 
My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. What amazing testimony to say, I will praise you as long as I live. You know, I think we would say, I will praise you as long as things are going good, right? That would be our statement of faith. I will praise you as long as I live. So if I am chased by Saul the rest of my life, if I live my life on the run in the wilderness in a horrible situation, David was saying, I will still praise your name. What a faith to say, I will praise you in the good and the bad and the ugly. You are still worthy of my worship. Man, I, I, I just, I want that. I, I want to be there. He goes on to say, my soul be satisfied as with the richest of foods. And you know what's amazing is Jesus spoke to this specifically in John 6. We see in verse 27, he said, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give you. Jesus is saying, if you live and work for food that spoils, it will always go bad. It will always leave you thirsting and hungering for more. And verse 35 later, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus is first saying this, don't give your life, don't give your affections, don't give your time, your money, your energy to things that spoil they're just temporary. And he goes on to say this, but this is where we should give ourselves. Because he said, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, if you don't go to these things, if you come to me, you will never go hungry and you will never go thirsty. What a profound promise that Jesus offers us. And that is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, that every single one of us were separated from God. Every single one of us were doing our own thing. We were living for food that spoils. All of us at one time in our lives were living for food that spoils. And God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to this earth to live a perfect life and die on the cross for us. So that now we could come to Jesus and he is the one who promises to never leave us hungry or never leave us thirsty. This is the power of the gospel, guys. How, how many people, is that good news or what? I mean, just think about the people you work with, your friends, your family. How many people are working for food that spoils? How many people are working for that car or to pay off that car or that boat or to pay off that boat? How many are, are just living for their family? Like, it's great. It's nice to see, but their greatest joy and setbacks happen in their family. So when things are good, their kids are obeying, they're happy. When things are tough, man, their family's a wreck. Jesus is saying, if you come to me, I will give you bread that will never leave you hungry and I'll never leave you thirsty. That is the promise of Jesus. That is good news for everyone to hear, guys. And that is why, and Tim Keller goes on to say this, this is how we deal with idols. Because it's important that we don't just turn away from idols and say, okay, I, I, this is bad, I realize it, I don't want that. This is how we deal with idols. Tim Keller says, Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. And how many times, I think this is so true, you, I, we've had, 
you know, situations or meetings where like an echo where people will be crying out to God. There'll be people come up that are in serious sin and bondage that they're just holding on to and, and God will set them free. They'll come up, we'll pray for them and we'll just believe that God will set them free from those things and bam, God does something big, ignites a, a love for God in their heart. And I think sometimes what happens is when we fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, often like a month later, that person is just back in the same place they were. Right? Have you ever seen that? Like, dude, I thought you were, you were just set free. Why are you back there again? And often we fail to plant the love of Christ in its place. Christ be, must be more beautiful, more amazing, and just greater than anything else we could imagine having on this earth. That is how we deal with our idols. I want to just look at one last verse here together. This is in, uh, starting with verse 6. David says, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. What he was saying is in the darkest of times, in the watch of the night, in the, in the middle of the night, when we are going in our darkest hour, David was saying, I will be thinking of you. You are the one who will help me. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Just this week, um, I think it was two weeks ago, actually, me and Beth, and we have a son, Calvin, who's six months old. Uh, we're going for a walk. And uh, Beth got one of those really hip, trendy baby carrier things that you wear. You guys ever see those? Like he like is strapped on and he's like hugging and like stuck to her. And so we were walking around and, and it was a beautiful day and we thought we'd go for a walk. So we had Calvin with us. And as we were walking, we came out to this, this moment where the, the trees were gone and the sun was just shining right in Calvin's face. And Obviously, as a six-month-old, there's not much you can do. He can't ask for us to, like, turn him the other way. He can't, like, shield his hand. Uh, he was just hit with the sun right in his face. And so instantly, like, as a father, like, I, I want to protect him. And so right then it happened, like, I jumped up, and, like, I stood right in the path of the sun. And so it looked kind of funny, but, like, we went for a walk, and the whole time we were walking, I stood right in the, in the way of the sun. And so he was in my shadow. And this is what Jesus has done for us. That in the middle of our opposition that we could do nothing about, we were lost in sin and bondage, that we had nothing to look to. There's nothing we could do. Jesus stepped in the way and took the full hit for us. So that now we can, because of Jesus, we can rest in the shadow of his wings. So that when the greatest trial, the greatest difficulty comes our way, you lose a job, a family member, someone close to you, Guys, we can rest in the shadow of his wings. How awesome is that? That is our God. That is how good he is. And David knew that. David experienced that. And for us, it is vital for us to live in the shadow of his wings. I want to just bring a New Testament example to this, and I'm going to close. In Acts 16, this is a great passage where Paul and Silas were out preaching the gospel, and they got beat up and persecuted and thrown in prison. And so we see the aftermath of that, of their time in prison. So about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So they're in prison. They were beaten. They were persecuted. They had no idea what their future held. They, were, they could have gotten killed the next day. They, you just didn't know what was going to happen. They were in prison, and about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God. Doesn't that, re- doesn't that sound like Psalm 63? Of, in the watches of the night, I'll remember you. In the sharings, I will praise your name. These guys were in the most difficult situation in their life. They were in prison, guys, and they were worshiping God. They were worshiping God. And here's the thing that is so cool. We see that 
after they, it says they were singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. They were listening. And here's the thing that's so important. When life is going well, not many people listen to us, right? Oh, you're supposed to be happy. You're a Christian, right? Like you love Jesus and your life's supposed to be nice and easy. And so people don't take notice of us much when we talk about our testimony or talk about what God is doing. But when things hit the fan, when things go south, when things go really bad, when we're put in prison, that is when people are listening. Okay, so now what are they going to say? Okay, so they claim to be a Christian when things are going well. So now things are bad. Let's, let's, let's see and hear what they say about God now. Let, let's, see, let, let's see what their response is to that situation. Paul and Silas were in prison worshiping God and the prisoners were listening. How amazing is that? They, they had, I'm sure the expectation was they would be freaked out. They'd be complaining. They wouldn't be singing. And yet the prisoners were listening to them. There is a confidence that comes from our lives being rested in, in God's hands that we know he has our lives. We can rest in his shadow that builds confidence for us to worship and sing praises to the Lord in the darkest of times. Amen. This is real guys. This isn't just a, a, an idea or a, a notion. This is living life. This is the nuts and bolts of life and how we live it. I, I was, I was so uh, encouraged to see Jeff Steele with us this morning. He uh, lives in Malaysia. He is Valerie and Elizabeth Steele's father who both go to this church. And um, I think it was back in 97, uh, 13 years ago, uh, the, the Steele's, uh, Jeff Steele lost his wife. Uh, she had lost life to cancer and it was just a, a brutally tough uh, time for the family to go through. If you can imagine having a, a family of, of four kids and uh, to lose everything, to lose your wife in that moment is not a happy or easy moment. This is real. And what amazes me is what Jeff Steele did with his kids. After they got news that their, their mother and his wife had passed away, he basically broke out communion. They got grape juice and bread and they celebrated together the life of Jesus Christ and what he brought to their family. In the middle of probably one of the toughest things that you will ever go through, they worship the Lord together. How many of us can say that about our lives? We have immunized ourselves from the life that we see is meant to live out in scripture. We have some other version of, that isn't a real version at all. And we're missing it, guys. We're missing it. This morning, I want to challenge us that we would be a people that, like we read in the beginning, could say, whom have I in heaven but you? On earth, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's not make this an idea or something that we feel is unattainable. Let's make this a reality in our life, guys. We need to be a church that longs for God. We need to be men that aren't afraid to talk about loving and longing for God in a real way. Man, we need that so badly. The, the world is used to seeing a church that is weak, that is superficial, and when the, the chips fall, they they buck out. 
That's what, that's what the experience of our culture is today. We need to be a church that is a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We need to be salt and light to those around us. And it starts with having a longing and a passion for Jesus greater than anything else this world has to offer. Amen? So let me just pray to end our time together, and I think we're going to have uh, just an appropriate response of communion together, which would uh, be good to do. So, Lord, I lift up every person in this room this morning. And God, I, I just want to repent, Lord, for, for you not being the one you're supposed to be in my life. God, as we look at the desires of our hearts and the things that we long for, Lord, so often you are a distant fourth or fifth in our life. And God, when things go tough, Lord, how often do we actually turn to you? Lord, how often do we actually believe that you are the one that will satisfy the longings of our hearts? God, I pray that you would tear down, Lord, the pride in our lives, the idols that we have in our life. Lord, I pray that we would plant a love for you, God, that would far surpass any longing in this world. God, that we would be satisfied, that we, our thirst would be found and met in you, Jesus. God, we repent for just a church that has been such a poor witness to this world. God, we repent for so poorly, Lord, not conveying the life that you have, Lord, wanted us to live. God, let us be that people that we would say, on earth there is nothing I desire aside from you, Jesus. Let us be a church that says, you know, my strength and my heart may fail, but God is my portion. He is the one that satisfies. God, that is the church I want to be a part of. God, that is the community I want to be surrounded by. Lord, break us of our superficialness. Break us of the things that will distract us from what is real. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are the bread of life. Praise your name. Amen.